Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we discuss the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. I'm Tim Tucker, and with me today is author James Campion. Welcome, James. Tim, nice to be on the show. I always ask my guests two key questions before we get started. One, how would you rate your fandom of the Beatles on a scale of one to ten? Ah, ah. Interesting question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me. Between the scale of one to ten, I will. I'll, I'll do a caveat. It's number one as far as like just loving them so much. But having worked on my book and interviewed so many people and read so many volumes and then have been on so many podcasts and radio shows and been interviewed by so many and and did Beetlefest in Chicago and in here in New Jersey, I can't. I, I can't even begin to be near what certain people have in their fandom. So I'll say in, definitely in the top five, let's say three and a half. Well, I, I'm going to calibrate that because when I say one to 10, I mean 10 being the top. So that would make oh, it I'm a sorry. seven. So eight yeah. and a seven. Oh yeah, seven and a half. Okay, my bad. Seven and a half, right, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. And, and the second one, <laughs> and this will probably go into talking about your book a bit more, is have you ever met or seen the Beatles live or met their entourage, anything like that in the course of your uh, work? Yeah. So working on this book, I got to know very well Michael Lindsay Hogg, who, as we know, directed the the famous Get Back series, which was originally Let It Be, and all those early, early Beatle film clips, like Rain and Paperback Writer, and then later on, obviously, Hey Jude, that's why I interviewed him. And Michael was a great insight into working with the Beatles and being in that group. But the answer is no, in general, I have never met uh, any Beatle. I was born in 62. So I kind of came to the Beatles at that second generation. I remember hearing Beatles songs when I was a kid, but really learning about them in the early 70s with the red and blue albums uh, here in the States. And but I did see Paul McCartney in 1989 on the Flowers in the Dirt tour where he first started playing Beatles songs. And when I first really had this incredible connection, or as I call it in the book, an emotional currency between the childhood me hearing Hey Jude and the adult mid to late 20s me, and then realizing how important and how seminal and connecting that song was to me psychologically and emotionally. And then I saw him. Luckily, I did this book signing last June in Syracuse, the very day that he played the Syracuse Caridome, where my wife and her family is from. So the very day I got to sign the books and talk to Beatle fans at the local Barnes & Noble, I got to see Paul again. And and that was fabulous. So I saw Paul twice. Yeah. And we keep mentioning this book, but we haven't formally introduced it. So you've written right. the book, which was published last year called Take a Sad Song, The Emotional Currency of Hey Jude. You spoke to Michael Lindsay Hogg for that. Anybody else of note? I mean, there was lots of interviews in there. I've read the book. It's a fa fabulous book. But any anyone stand out for you? Thank you. Uh, what I did was I tried to find professors who were not super famous, like Questlove or somebody, you know, uh, somebody that you know, teaches at NYU. Uh, or many writers that I know that also uh, are professors and, and such. And then I reached out to singer-songwriters that I have gotten to know and write about as a music journalist over the years. The most famous probably in the book is Adam Duritz, the lead singer of Counting Crows. He and I were working on a book in 2017 and 2018. And then I ended up doing a podcast called Underwater Sunshine with him from 2018 up until when the pandemic hit in early 2020. We have to get back to it, but he's been on the road and I've been writing. I worked on this book in the interim. So I, I interviewed many great singer-songwriters that I hope other people will look up, like Eric Hutchinson, who's had some fame. His songs have been on TV shows and advertisements. Sean Barna, who's an excellent singer-songwriter, writes about the gay experience here in America. 
Matt Susage, who's sort of like the modern Paul Simon, and women writers like Elizabeth Zeman and and many others. So I, I guess it was just a hodgepodge. And of course, I interviewed Rob Sheffield, who's famous for you know Dreaming the Beatles, a wonderful Beatles book. He's uh, writes for Rolling Stone magazine. Rob was the one that put my book up for Rolling Stone magazine's top music books of 2022, and it ended up being voted in the top ten, which is a great honor for me. And and of course, everybody knows Tim Riley who's written several books about the Beatles. I was helped out by Mark Lewison and several others. So there are people in there whose voices you might recognize or names you might recognize, but I love the fact that I got like an entire real surrounding aspect of, of interviews. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. I think it's it's all encompassing and it's great to see all the different responses and more analytical, more heartfelt, you know, more creative insights into the song. It's, it's a fabulous book. Thank you. Hey Jude, don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better And of course, your chosen song today to talk about is Hey Jude which yeah, I hope remains, I guess, remains your your favourite Beatles song, even after all this listening and writing about it. I'm just going to introduce the very basic facts about when it was recorded and released, and then we'll discuss it. So it was recorded uh, at Trident Studios on an 8-track for the first time in August 1968, released in the US first, actually, on the 26th of August and on the 30th of August in the UK. It went to number one in both countries, was a massive hit, especially in America, for nine weeks there and three weeks at number one in the UK. Those are the basic facts. Where do we start? I mean, you've written the whole book mm. on it, but why Why um, did you, it might be a good place to start, is why, why did you choose this song to write about and as your favourite Beatles song? I mentioned it earlier. It was definitely my, one of my earliest sentient memories as a child, aside from like Disney songs or things like that, where I would sing the Nana part to get me to sleep whenever I'd have nightmares. And I remember that distinctly. So when I heard it years later, I was like, oh, that's that song. So the Nanas came first, which is interesting. And then fast forward to 1989 when I saw Paul play and I was at Madison Square Garden. I got seats on the side of the stage. So the entire 20,000 people in the arena we're singing it. And when he, and this is when he first started doing that, everybody sing it. So I, now that's become rote, right? It's a thing he does. But back then, no one had ever seen him sing this song. And and I'm watching him do like, you know, he did quite a few Beatles songs uh, in that show off the top of my head. He did Sergeant Peppers, I think. He said, he did Drive My Car. He did Fool on the Hill. But when he did Hey Jude, it was like the Beatles came alive. And I realized, oh man, I am in a room with a Beatle. And this song just totally brought me back to my childhood. You know, fast forward over the years, I always loved it. Whenever it comes on, I find myself singing it. Whenever I kind of goof around the guitar and I, I go to that part, everyone in the room sings it. And finally, I thought, well, I wanted to, it was during the pandemic. And I said, I want to write a song. I've written, a, I've written an entire book on a record, Destroyer by Kiss. I've written several essays in my previous book to this on Warren Zevon's music. I thought, let me try to tackle one song. So I reached out to a lot of the authors who have written about one song. My friend Alan Leiter wrote a book about Hallelujah and Dave Marsh, the great writer who wrote uh, a book about uh, Louis Louie. And of course, a guy I got to know during this writing this book, Grail Marcus, one of the great deans of music writing who wrote a book 
uh, called Like a Rolling Stone, Bob Dylan at the Crossroads. So all those things sort of coalesced. And then the pandemic hit for me to dive in and just say, let me find a song I can write about. And then, as you mentioned, Tim, it's I didn't realize it was the biggest number one song in the history of the Beatles in America. Worldwide, number one in like 19 or 20 countries. It reinvigorated the Beatles in our consciousness. I had no idea that the Beatles kind of plateaued after the Sgt. Peppers and all these other bands were coming up, the Kinks and the Who and in America, the band and Hendrix. And, and so the Beatles had to reestablish themselves, which this single did. It's the first song they recorded on 8-track. It's the first single they released for Apple, which is still to this day, the highest charting song ever for a new label. And it makes sense. It is the Beatles. So many aspects and how I discovered that it really was sort of the coalescing, the culmination, if I will, if, if I may, of everything the Beatles do well in their canon, in my estimation. So not only do I love it on a very basic visceral level, but I also came to love it in an intellectual, clerical, almost statistical level, too. It, it has this amazing reverberation through time, you know. It's also the last time I think you said in the book that, and I hadn't realized this, that they'd all got all four of them have recorded a single together. Correct. That's right. right? Yeah. And, and as you say, it's sort of ironic because it's the beginning of the end in a way, isn't it? This period, they were starting to crack, you know, the, the sessions in the White Album, John had met Yoko, Paul had met Linda. This single sort of brings them back together, doesn't it? The, the sentiment of it is all about kind of a shared experience, isn't it? And that's something not just with them within the band, but with the public. Yeah, well, number one, it was done quickly. Like all those great Beatles singles going all the way back to Love Me Do, right? They were a singles band. I know that they reinvented the album, but at their heart, especially in, in the UK, they would release singles and then albums were different, you know, whether it's Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and that kind of thing. So that's kind of got them back together because they're slogging their way through the White Album, which everybody always jokes, even though it's my favorite Beatles album. Uh, it jokes that it's, you know, it's a, it's a single Beatle and then the backing band for each guy. They were all in different studios, fighting, doing 100 takes of George Harrison songs. Not sure. John can't stand, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Paul doesn't have any idea what the hell John's doing with Revolution 9. So all this stuff's going on. And then finally, you know, Paul goes out to visit John's son. They, they he, he, he had just met Linda. And of course, John just consummated his relationship with Yoko and now is leaving his family. And Paul comes back on, uh, I think around June 29th, June 30th of 1968. And he bangs a song out in his, in his place there in St. John's Wood and, and shows it to John about a day or two later, then, sh then starts playing it for people, right? Like played for the guys from Badfinger, plays it in a pub. He just starts playing it for people. So within the first week of July, he's got Hey Jude down. And then of course the Beatles did what they did with all you need is love or or you know she loves you let's get in there in and out bang it out like we always do lads and they all came together to play this song nobody there's no battle i know john i know paul didn't really want george to do those those answering guitar parts so he kind of moved them out but unlike can let it be six months later you know george is happy to do it he he's a little miffed and made a joke about it in, in his song isn't it a pity when when the beatles broke up on his solo album but he, you could tell that they're all in as usual. And like you say, and, and I write in the book, it's the last time all four of these guys go in to record a single like they did in 1962. And when they leave that studio, I believe, Tim, that's when they're really just maintaining that relationship. They're still making great music, but I think that whole sort of going up, going up the elevator sort of really does plateau. And then it switches and goes down slowly. We don't see it yet and they don't see it, but certainly, and it does reinvigorate finally 
in the zeitgeist. It brings the Beatles back into the discussion as the masters of the pop music that they created. He started composing it on a drive to see Julian, John Lennon's son, who he wanted to console because John and his wife, Cynthia, were splitting up and he wanted to console Julian. And it starts with Hey Jules and then turns into Hey Jude. Of course, John famously said, oh, that's about me. That's Hey John, you know. (laughs) And then Paul says, well, I think it's about me. It's Hey Paul. And almost everyone can relate to it. I think it's part of the charm, isn't it? You nailed it. I mean, that's the beauty of great art, isn't it? It's personal and universal. And Paul did that, I think, better even than John. John's, John's comments are always universal first. Imagine. All you need is love. Give peace a chance. He's speaking to the grander thoughts. And that's what I love about John. Don't get me wrong. But what I discovered about Paul was he's very much two things. He very much loves to to talk through characters. A lot of the songwriters and also the, the authors and the Beatle historians and scholars I talked to, they all said to a person, you know what? This is the hardest thing in the world a song written in the second person. He's talking to this mystical Jude and giving him advice, but he's doing it in not a proselytizing way. He's not on his soapbox. I talk about it in, in, in a sense of a Hindu or Buddhist sense of like, you, you have the ability to change inside or what Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. So yeah, Hey Jude has a lot of that kind of stuff in it to to communicate it well. And I love the fact that John thought it was about him. And they're all going through these different things, Tim. But in the end, I think the beauty of it is two friends who met only a couple of days ago, the anniversary of, as you and I are speaking, met at that uh, fete in, in Liverpool and started a worldwide movement. And they never stopped, in my estimation, even through all the backbiting and suing and arguing and using the press to beat each other. They never, ever stopped loving and caring about the others, professionally, musically, and personally. And I think that comes through in Hey Jude, it really does. John Lennon said this is Paul's best song, and he doesn't make any attempt to sort of take credit for any of it, which is kind of unusual in itself. I think he lets Paul McCartney have all the credit for that. And he says it's a damn good set of lyrics. And I made no contribution to that. And I, we have to agree, don't you? I mean, as a set of lyrics, it's so well completed. Even the lines he didn't like, like the yeah. movement you need is on your shoulder. Right, the ones which is that... the great story. Right, of mm. course. And then the, the movement you need, of course, John wanted to, to, to leave it in. Paul was like, it's just a placeholder, like scrambled eggs for yesterday. But I think it's beautiful because, again, it means nothing and it means everything. For me, it's always like letter under your skin, which is a beautiful juxtaposition of like, oh, an irritant. That person's getting under my skin. 
But this time, let her into your heart, into your skin, let her into your DNA. And it goes from this solace, hey, Jude, take a sad song and make mm. it better. When Paul, who feels, no, no, he knows music saved him from the death of his mother at 14 to his connection to his father, to getting out of Liverpool, to meeting John, to connecting with Elvis and Little Richard, to making his own voice, making his own songs. When, when Paul uses song as a metaphor, he is getting down to the very DNA of Paul McCartney, but he's also getting very down to the DNA of John Lennon. He sees it too. And I feel also Ringo and George see it and George Martin. And all of us who've listened and loved this song, we all see it and feel it and hear it, certainly. But the way that John Lennon supports and harmonizes oh God, is very yes. tasteful, isn't it? Mm. Oh, God. It's the first, yeah. according to Tim Riley, the great music, the musicologist, I looked it up. I can't find, he he believes in the entire Beatles catalog. That is the only time, unless they go up together, like, and she loves you or I want to hold your hand. It's the only time John goes above him for harmony. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Here's John supporting his pal. And when his voice cracks a little bit, it just, again, it gives me such chills. I am filled with such joy. It's so beautiful. And then, of course, Paul returns the favor when John writes a similar song, Don't Let Me Down, a couple of months later. And Paul's harmonies over that are, are just absolutely stunning. And John is writing that same song, you know, don't. Don't let me, I'm giving over my, I'm doing the Hey Jude thing. I'm making myself vulnerable. I'm letting you into my skin and into my heart. Please don't hurt me. You know, that's the way John responds. But it's so beautiful. Paul and John always supporting each other. I think a lot of people say it's their greatest uh, duet, even though it's very short since If I Fell. It's just so beautifully done. One of my favorite lyrics in it, whenever I hear it, is let it out and let it in, oh, which I think yeah. is such a beautiful sort of yin and yang statement. There's something about it and you can't break it down. You can't explain why you love a lyric like that in the same way that John couldn't explain why you like the movement you need is on your shoulder. You just feel it every time, don't you? This and it, true. And what I love actually is there's a few a few premonitions in the in the song, aren't there? So that let it out, let it in line comes as a backing vocal before it becomes the the main lead vocal, which is lovely. Yeah, well, let it in, let it out, let it in. I thought Kylie Lotz, who goes by the name of Petal, a, a wonderful young singer songwriter from Philadelphia here in the States, she she nailed it, and a couple of people echoed it. You know, that's just breathing, isn't it? It's right. just the idea of breathing and relaxing, and just and also for the Beatles, it was I, I titled the chapter "The Very Brief History of the Beatles." Let it let it out and let it in because they let out this incredible music, this these incredible personalities, this wonderful image of four guys all dressed the same, bowing the same with the same haircuts and boots and just laughing and loving life. And then the whole world returned it with Beatlemania to the point where, you know, almost killed those guys and they had to get off the road. But it was a lot of love that they put out and got back in. The thing about that that I love, and this is me, my, I realize this is me, not not Paul, but is is let it <laughs> out is almost what John did with the primal scream thing. You know, letting out his anger, letting out his frustration. Letting Very it in good. is what the song's asking people to do let let this girl in you know and and so yes. it can, but but you know i'm only saying that because 
the lyrics, there are a lot of these lyrics in this song that you can interpret in ways that you feel are relevant to you, aren't there? And and when it comes down to the coda, of course, the none and ours, you could, you know, there's no lyrics. So it's it's communal in the way that we can interpret this in our lives, can't we? We can bring it to our lives and see how it makes sense to us. Yeah, I call it comfort and unity. And I only called it that because a lot of people I interviewed talked about that. The comforting part is obviously the beginning. Hey, Jude, take that sad song, make it better. You can make it better. You don't need any fancy platitudes or politics or religion or anything to change your life. It's within you to do it. It's a very, very positive sense. And as many writers told me, there's never a time in your life that this, that's not a nice sentiment, right? You got this. Right? You got this is a very nice sentiment. Of course, you do need help. You may need doctors or you may need family and friends, certainly. I also love the fact when he, say, when he sings, you have found her, now go and get her. Well, of course, where John is at this point, Right. Right. I mean, he yeah. feels guilty. He's leaving his family. He feels terrible. In fact, John writes almost days before he writes good night for Julian as a sort of a solace for himself um, to write this song for his young son, who is the same age, by the way, five years old as John was when his father left him. And then Paul and John feeling that connection of losing their mothers as teenagers and writing these beautiful love songs that I discovered while writing this book in the early love songs. Because Paul says, you know, when I wrote yesterday, the middle eight, why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I think that was about my mom because one minute she's fixing my skin knee and the next minute she's in a hospital dying. It, it was a shocking thing for anyone, especially a 14-year-old kid. And of course, John loses his mom like that in a car accident and, you know, gets hit by a car. So... I find that a lot of the Beatles songs are searching for that hole of maternal and womanly love inside them. And so John immediately sees that in Hey Jude and he embraces it and loves it so much and loves his friend for giving him that gift. There's so many weird things about that that you bring out in the book that I didn't realize that Paul at the same time was starting up with Linda and how similar Linda and Yoko were. What, remind me what you discovered about their backgrounds that were similar. It's amazing. Well, first of all, they're both essentially Americans, right? So, but not, right? So they got, she's got British parents, but also American. She's got Japanese, but raised in America. Both essentially raised in New York. Both go to the same Scarsdale school, but at different times, because Yoko's got about 10 years on Linda. Both go into the, the Greenwich Village art scene. For Yoko, it's the 1950s and the whole physical art scene. And for Linda, it's the 1960s, photograph scene in which and both of them find their way to England. For, for Linda, she was always attracted to Paul and had it in the back of her mind uh, as a billion women at the time did. I mean, that's not really saying much. But for Yoko, she didn't really know much about the Beatles. Yoko seeks out Paul initially. And then Paul's like, hey, I got my friend here. He can handle this. And both John and Paul are in, are, are in serious relationships. John's been married for you know seven years. Paul's been engaged for five years. And they're both artists as well, aren't they? She's a photographer. Both, and she's, right. Yeah. Both working mm. in the art form. Both come from very domineering, successful, rich fathers. And both have previous marriages and both have daughters in those previous marriages. Meet these Beatles within months of each other. And then, a, then within a week of each other, marry these men in 1969 yes when that started to happen to me when i'm working on this book tim I, my mind was exploding yeah and uh, there's a there's a quote and i'm sorry i haven't got it to hand but it's something like john realizing this and saying to paul we're going through the same thing we're going we, we've got the same deal going on 
in a way, it's kind of their last unifying moment, isn't it? Before they're going to split. It's their last seeing themselves reflected in each other, having similar experiences and looking for a similar outcome. Yes. And that great line. What's that line? Find someone, you found someone to perform with, which is a weird line, right? I mean, what? Perform sexually, perform a marriage ceremony. But think about it. Both of these men take these women and make them part of their art. Unlike anyone else unless they were younger like say johnny cash right and he, he took his his wife but but these these guys in a very macho women are just for groupies man and keep them you know and they bring them into their art and they must be in their art and they find the women that will replace each other no one will ever replace john for paul paul for john but you know what i mean it's like they need they they, yeah. they see intimacy and love friendship love artistic love and eventually womanly love with their music and they need these women to share that with them oh it's just it fills my heart with so much joy there was many times i got i get goosebumps just talking about it now thinking about how these two men changed the 20th century but they had a lot of emptiness that they needed filled and they found it at the same time and hey jude is a song is a celebration of that another of my favorite lines in it is the line don't you know it's just you you'll do I love that line because he's saying to, if it is to John and, you know, you may be subconscious, he's saying, you know, you're going to be all right on your own. You don't need the Beatles. You don't need me. You can do it. You know, like you say, and the line you'll do is great. I mean, I don't know if you have that in America in, in, in the UK, that's a, in the England, we say that a lot, you know, you'll do, you're all right. You'll do. It's kind of like not a put down, but it's kind of like a mild thing to say, but in this song, it feels like you'll do, it feels more enabling. You'll do something on your own. Do you know what I mean? And, it, and for a song that doesn't have a lot of lyrics, you know, and it's not as deep as, say, Eleanor Rigby, which is a very deep story song or anything on Sgt. Pepper's or even some of the stuff that they did, you know, on Revolver. It's very simple, but it's beautiful. You know, I I was really introduced as a, as a music writer and someone who analytically dives into lyrical songs just as, you know, being a, a man of letters per se, as opposed to, I could play a little music and I love music and I write about it. But as Elvis Costello said, it's like dancing to architecture. So it's a tough thing to do. But I noticed how really good subtly, not in your face, but subtly Paul McCartney was lyrically. And I know he and John were very inspired by Bob Dylan and later on what Dylan read, like Rambeau and that kind of stuff. Um, but I listened to, do you remember when those 45s came out? Was it last year? The big 45 box yeah, set. Yeah, I, massive, I was listening yeah. to it on Spotify, song after song after song. And every one of those had adorable, cute lyrics that popped out that I remember as a kid, but also things I never knew he sang. And then I looked it up and I was like, wow, that's a great line. Just tossed away in these beautifully, you know, written, like I said, melodically structured songs. Yes, very underrated lyricists all was. It is, it is a simple song, isn't it? It's it's one of the great parts of it is that they restrain themselves from going over the top, don't they? They don't, they don't go too far with anything. 
And that's all saved up for the coda, which we'll talk about in a minute. But but in a way, it never gets histrionic. You know, that he sings it very kind of straightforwardly, doesn't he? But it is a soulful song. But the simplicity is. is part of its its magic, isn't it? Really, the, yeah, the, the yeah, and, and, the chords, and, and, the core, right? The core. Well, like so, the, some of the musicologists said to me, it's got a little Mozart in it. It's got a little, you know, boogie woogie in it. It's got a lot of gospel in it, and it's got some of that great American songbook kind of stuff I talked about, Gershwin or Cole Porter or, you know, these guys who knew how to structure songs. When you know he sings, you know, take a sad song. It's the highest note. He's taking that sad song. You know, he goes up there. Or when you know, let it out or let it in, like let it out goes up, but let it in comes down. It's just beautiful. It's a it's a classic example of a ballad. Go up the mountain, come back down the mountain. Go into the valley, but come back up. I mean, these are things we don't here on the on the conscious level but on the subconscious level level it hits us right in the chin and I, I argue in the book that paul mccartney does that as well as any other human being has who's ever put song to 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 lyric and he does it in my estimation at his height and of course he is let's not forget he is backed by the greatest recording band in the history of the 20th century and they're as we said earlier they're all in so when they get to the coda, I know you're leading me to the coda. Yeah, well, we're going to get there. We, yeah. we all know it's coming, right? I mean, that's every songwriter is like, it's the payoff song, the payoff, which I love emotional currency, right? The currency payoff is we're getting there. Better, better, better. But of course, he 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 gives us hints, like you said before, because he, he'll 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 do little things like na 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 in that little bridge part, and then you're thinking, is it good? Nope, he brings us back down again. What a genius! Just yeah. a genius. It is. But it seems ahead. so effortless, doesn't it? The other thing, before, yeah, as we get to the decoder, is that you mentioned all those musical styles, but one of the most dominant is the kind of gospelly church-like yes. quality. And you you picked out one I hadn't heard before. Today, um, in F Major by John Ireland is mentioned in your book by one of your interviewees, I think, as a a possible influence on the melody. Yeah. So Walter Everett, the great Beatle historian and musicologist, he first pointed it out to me about the Te Deum. And then I spoke to John Devers, professor from Kentucky, who also leads an angelical choir. And a, a woman, and strangely enough, Mary, her name is, which was Paul's mom and his daughter, discovered when singing it, oh my God, I think I found the origins of Hey Jude. So he shared it. Devers was a was a was a fellow student with Walter Everett, who mentions it briefly in one of his dissertations. And then I, of course, pre pressed him on it. And then we all listened to it together. And then I asked Devers and Everett, and they both agreed. Paul's not nicking this. Paul sang an angelical choir uh, or Episcopal choir, whatever you call it there in, in England, in Liverpool when he was eight, nine years old. The same age, by the way, that I remember hearing Hey Jude, uh, maybe a little older than when I was five or six in 1968. But and that opening, da, 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 da. and then, of course, he takes that and then brings it back later on for the double amen uh, plagal cadence, which is what the na na na's are, which is very much the amen cadence, of course, is amen. But if you play it twice, it gives you the structure of Hey Jude. So 
In, yeah. in essence, he's grabbing that spiritual gospel, which Paul adored and John adored. And all the guys from England were inspired by the Southern African-American gospel style that is at the, the very core of rock and roll, whether it's Ray Charles or Chuck Berry or Bo Diddley or the, the Little Richard who ended up becoming a preacher later on. There's this whole lineage and Paul puts it in his song and he does it not I don't think completely subconsciously. I mean, I'm not saying he, he, again, he nicked the song, but he's using these amazing tools that he has. Um, I think by this point, right, Paul has been writing songs since 14, right? So he's about 26 years. So he's been writing songs for 12 years. So, and great, and great songs and really communicating to us, not only lyrically, but by the time he gets to the na-na's, he's musically bringing us together. Remember to let her under your skin. And let's talk about this coda because it goes on. First of all, it goes on longer than the main song, right? <laughs> Four minutes, which in itself is remarkable. <laughs> it's insane, Tim. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> so that's what a lot of the songwriters said. This was a huge AM hit. This is not Frank Zappa and the Mothers. Okay, this is, you know, the, the, the coda goes on longer than the actual song. There was somebody, there's a gentleman after the book came out who told me his dad told him he ran home and told his parents he heard the new Beatles song. There's no lyrics to it. It's just not, not, not. Because he turned the radio on and it's over three minutes. It's just not, not. So he figures that's the song, right? I mean, it's madness, but it works. And of course, John's the one who stands up in the studio and tells George, George Martin's like, we, we got to chop this. And John's like, they'll play it because we're the Beatles. And that put George Martin on on his best it gave him that mission statement because then what does george do he builds an incredible background not only are the beatles singing and playing and as a couple of the musicians pointed out in my book they listen to hey jude again with different ears when they go to that coda they start off very you know very choppy you know very staccato and then they get into the allegro. They get into the flow. They're flowing now. I mean, you know, the drums are flowing. The acoustics are up and down. The, it's a full band moment. And it changes. And of course, here's George Martin. First you get the horns, then you get the strings, and you get the timpani. And next thing you know, you're going around 19 times and none of it's boring. Yeah. It's an incredible feat music. It's a real build, isn't it? Yeah, it's a build through the 36 musicians, I think. Uh, 36 piece orchestra yes. they hired. Yeah, Very good. and beautifully done, beautifully orchestrated, with Paul getting more and more soulful as we know. Oh, yeah. You can you can always you sing go. along to those those improvisations now, can't we? Because we know it so well when he starts singing. Yeah, Judy, and Judy. we and we <laughs> see it coming, right? So it's already yeah. said, like you know, the horn parts come in right before he does the Judy Judy, and the cool thing about it was that's those that's what the vamps are, right? So I interviewed people who who study gospel music and American history of, of of black music through the South, and that vamp, I I. I talk about the solsters and Sam Cooke, who is the king of that, in my estimation. And a guy that, of course, John and Paul adored and, and, and their manager, his manager ended up managing the Beatles, Alan Klein. But, you know, Paul's doing that 
testifying. If you listen to the old soul stars, those songs go on for 17 minutes. And the main guy is like, that's right. Okay. Testify. Testify. You know what I mean? Doing and Paul, that's what Paul's doing. And I know a lot of people say, well, that's in an essence appropriation. You know, I got this British white guy taking, but for Paul and the Beatles, just like the Rolling Stones, I said earlier, there's an absolute reverence for this. Yeah, no, it's perfect. <laughs> like it's reverent, right? It, there, yeah. it, there's a reverence to Hey Jude at the end that is just so glorious. I, you know, the second I get off from now, I'm going to get off. Put it on again. Yeah. yeah, I am. So you asked me before if I'm sick of it. No, no. <laughs> it, it was the last song I heard before my father died. I mean, minutes before my father passed because he's in North Carolina and I had come back. He was not doing well. We thought he was going to last a little longer. By the time I get off the plane, they they had to make a call on him. And so they put me on the phone with him. And and at that point, I had put headphones on, just kind of clear my head. And I had this mix. And don't you know that Hey Jude came on? And if that's not a sign from the universe, I don't know what is. You know? That's a consolation, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, this extra coda makes it the longest single, number one single ever up to that point until I think, is it is it American Pie that breaks that record? Maybe. Yeah. Um, so I've got some yeah. caveats to defend Hey Jude. May I? Yeah. Yeah, please. I have caveats. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> I don't know where it was there, but here in the States, hey, I remember it vividly because I think I had that 45. American Pie came out in 72, right? So on the first side, it's American Pie part one and on the second side, part two. So the entirety of the seven minutes and 11 seconds of the original cut, the mono and stereo cuts of Hey Jude was 7-11 on one side, which is masterful engineering. That That's what I'm saying. Everybody from Stoop to Nuts here did their jobs in an amazing way. And then as I'm finishing the book out, and I tell you, Tim, when I was putting the final stages on the copy edit of it, so I'd already written the book, here comes Taylor Swift with All Too Well. 10 minutes, now, but digital. So you can have a 40-minute song, right? Now, I know right. someone told me that that 16, 18-minute song that Dylan put out the year before on the, the assassination of, of, um, of John F. Kennedy might have made it to number one. I've got a lot of downloads. I don't know what, how they, they fashion that. But anyway, as far as I know, Technically, it's all too well, American Pie, and then Hey Jude. But I still argue Hey Jude is still the longest if you go one side of a 45. And since I'm from the 45 generation, I'm going yeah. with that. It's the record. The late 60s Beatles music is an all-encompassing sound. They were they were sort of reinventing to invent. And it really stuck in our in our heads. And for us 70s kids, when I came of age, that was sort of the foundation for it all. You know, a lot of the pop music we listened to then, especially the white pop music, but there were crossovers too. I mean, some of the greatest covers, Stevie Wonder's cover, We Can Work It Out, and and the cover of Hey Jude, you know, was very influential. And the name of the artist escapes me. Why? Pickett, yeah. Wilson Pickett. First song that Dwayne Allman played on, and a lot of people give credit to that version as being like sort of the birth of Southern rock and Muscle Shoals music that changed, of course, the course of, of music in the 1970s. Better. Just remember to let her 
you're not the only one, of course, who's chosen this song. I don't know if ah. you know Guy Chambers. He He's written lots of great songs, including Angels by Robbie Williams, who's a big artist here in the UK. He says, when I wrote Angels with Rob Williams, Hey Jude was very much on my mind in terms of the piano part and trying to write an epic. We used to use the end of Hey Jude on the Robbie set at the end of Lazy Days, go straight into the na-na-na-na's and everyone would sing it. But it's also a very intimate song, he says. The way it just starts with the piano, I think it's one of Paul's best vocal performances in terms of Mm -hmm. sincerity and coolness. And the shriek, that better, 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 that's one of the greatest moments in all pop music. When he hits that high F, it's ridiculously great. <laughs> I, I spent like about five pages and interviewing like six or seven people talking about how that note and climbing to that note is just so satisfying. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Any other Beatles songs you just want to give a nod to? Um, you know, any others that you would include in your collection of favorites that you just want to mention? I always say my second favorite Beatles song is Day in the Life. It's gorgeous, amazing. You know, I, I'm very rote. You know, I'll say one of my favorite movies is Wizard of Oz or The Graduate. I, my favorite novel is The Great Gatsby. So people are like, can you just pick something that's not, you know, uh, you know, applauded? Everybody loves Day in the Life, but I truly love it. Everything about it. It's a great Paul and John song. It's a wonderful storytelling song. It's creepy. It's inspiring. It's funny. It's sad. It's experimental. I love it. I mentioned Don't Let Me Down because it's sort of the brother to Hey Jude in a way. And I love all those. It's funny because Paul's song is my favorite Beatle, but I point out so many of John's great experimental songs like Tomorrow Never Knows or Rain, Strawberry Feels Forever. I love those songs. They really speak to me. They will get me out of moods or put me in different moods. And that's that's a great thing to say about a song. So you've, you've written this wonderful book. I highly recommend it to deep dive into Hey Jude. Yeah. What are you up to now? And where, and where can people find out more about you and your writing? Uh, yeah, well, firstly, I'm I'm on all the social media stuff. So I'm on, uh, at Fear No Art on Twitter and at James Campion on Instagram. I have a website, jamescampion.com. You can order the book directly from, you can find the book anywhere. So if you're in the UK, wherever you are, Amazon, you know, whatever your local bookstores will have it, all of my work. But if you're interested in a signed copy, unfortunately, I can't do free, I do free shipping within the continental US, but I can't do it to UK. So we can work something out. Certainly contact me and I will sign a copy to you or a friend or a wife or a mother or a brother or anybody who's happens to be a Beatle fan. So thanks for asking, Tim. And I'm currently working on a book. You and I were chatting before we started the, the tape or the digital, as it were. Excuse me. I'm currently working on a book on Prince and the Revolution, the period between 1979 and 1987, in which Prince played with bands. And Prince is kind of known as this, I call him in the book, the solitary entity, a guy who could write the songs, produce the songs, arrange the songs, play all the instruments on the songs, and and he could. But I realized during this most prolific period in the 1980s when he was in the center of the universe, the way the Beatles were in the 60s, that he had bands and, and musicians around him who inspired him, who moved him, and played some of the most historic concerts of the 1980s. And did some of the most amazing things like, you know, the film Purple Rain or anything like that. So I, I found that that whole story to be really interesting. So I'm reaching out to all the people from the revolution. I just returned from a trip in Minneapolis where I saw where Prince grew up for his shows. I got a great tour of the First Avenue Club where he started and a lot of the bands in Minneapolis started. So I'm, I'm trying to tell that story. And it's so much fun. It's just like diving into Hey Jude. You know, you get lost in it. And these stories, just they jazz me. So I can't wait to share them with readers. Great. Thank can't you. wait to see that. Fantastic. And I hope one day you'll you'll get back to the Beatles. Maybe you'll write a book about Day in the Life or something. <laughs> I made the joke when I when I promoted my book on Warren Zevon accidentally, like a martyr that tortured art of Warren Zevon. 
everybody asked me, well, why Warren Zevon? Because no one really knows. And I said, because there's enough damn books about the Beatles. Now I use that because there's so many, right? So when I, when I picked Hey Jude, I'm like, oh my God, I'm entering the labyrinth. I am taking on this massive, and all Beatle authors feel this because I talked to dozens of them. It's a big chunk of the world. And having spent some time with, with Mark Lewison and all these other great Beatle historians, it's really hard. It's a massive, amazing story that has a beginning and an end. Unlike the Rolling Stones who keep going and these other bands, yeah. keep, it's a beginning and an end. And it's a very tight 1960s beginning and end. They, they define the era. They're part of the era. It feeds them and they feed the era. So it was really daunting. I was glad to concentrate. I kept going, you know, trying to con- don't get don't get intimidated. Concentrate on Hey Jude. You love Hey Jude, but it's heavy lifting, man. And I'm telling you, I applaud anyone who takes on this massive, massive story. And it's one of the great, if not greatest stories in the history of popular music. Well, and you did a great job. I highly recommend the book to all listeners. Thank you again. Well, listen, it's been wonderful spending time with you talking about the Beatles and about Hey Jude. And thank you very much. It was great. Thank you, Tim. Keep up the fine work. I love the show, any show about the Beatles. But I like the fact that people get to wax poetic about their favorite Beatles song. Peace. Thanks for listening to my favourite Beatles song. If you like the podcast, please leave a review or rating as this helps us to reach new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at My Favourite Beatles Song and Twitter at at My Fave Beatles. See you next time. <laughs>